Hi everyone, I'm Anya Parampil and this is Redlines. My guest today is investigative journalist Gareth Porter. His latest article in the gray zone is titled How CENTCOM Chief McKenzie Manufactured an Iran Crisis to Increase His Power. Welcome back to Redlines, Gareth. Thank you so much, Anya. Glad to be back. Before we get into the story of General Kenneth McKenzie Jr., let's discuss recent military maneuvers the U.S. has made with respect to Iran. In December, the U.S. flew B-52 bombers into Iranian airspace and stationed a guided missile submarine in the Arabian Gulf. How did the U.S. justify these actions? Well, these were uh, justified largely, not exclusively, but largely on the basis that uh, there was a uh, elevated risk, quote unquote, of um, some sort of miscalculation by Iran that could result in uh, harm to U.S. troops particularly. Uh, that was the theme that was repeated throughout this period of uh, November, December, uh, up until this month, until early this month. And um, that, um, that, of course, brings us back to General McKenzie, because he was the primary uh, uh, sort of evil genius behind this campaign. Yeah, who is he exactly? And and he was working behind the scenes to make these pro provocations happen, really. Well, uh, General McKenzie is now the um, commander of Central Command, that is the command that has responsibility for the entire Middle East region. Now, apparently, they are putting Israel for the first time into the responsibility of, of Central Command or CENTCOM. Uh, up until now, Israel had been uh, separate. Um, and I think, you know, for obvious reasons that the, the main problems of CENTCOM region have been Arab states in the past, and they didn't want to have responsibility for Israel as well as dealing with Arab regimes. But now they have that problem as well. Um, Mackenzie has also had, uh, he was previously uh, in his career in uh, posts within CENTCOM, senior post, but not commander. And later he uh, ascended to the top of the Pentagon, or I should say of the military's uh, staff in the Pentagon, that is the joint staff. He was the director of the joint staff. Um, and held other positions, senior positions in the joint staff uh, prior to that. So he is an extremely um, uh, experienced officer who knows his way around the world as well as who knows his way around Washington's bureaucracy. And I make the point in my piece, and I think this is very important to understand, that he is probably the most politically ambitious as well as the most politically astute uh, holder of this position, and perhaps of any position uh, in the uh, US military for generations. I think he, he stands out as somebody who is extremely calculating, very clever, and in that sense, uh, far more dangerous than the run of the mill uh, commanders, uh, both in the field and in Washington. And how exactly did he run a PR campaign and an internal campaign in order to 
bring about these escalations with Iran? You document it in your article. Well, it's a rather complicated story, and I've tried to figure out how to break it down um, in the most effective, uh, most efficient way. Uh, it, it really begins uh, last year um, in the early part of the year. What Mackenzie was trying to do was to um, uh, hold on to the troops that he had already in the region, particularly in Iraq. Iraq was uh, the, the apparent prize for him in terms of having troops that were politically important uh, to the United States back in Washington. And so he made really strong efforts to uh, hold on to as many troops as he could stationed uh, U.S. troops in, in Iraq. He had, uh, at the outset of uh, this past year, uh, as many as 8,000 troops. They rather quickly were reduced, <coughs> excuse me, they were reduced to 6,000 uh, relatively early in the year. And he wanted to hold on to as many of that 6,000 as he could. But uh, what happened was that the Iranian, uh, the pro-Iranian militias in Iraq, uh, particularly Qatayb Hezbollah and others, uh, were really angry about the continued presence of U.S. troops in Iraq. First of all, you have to realize uh, or simply remember that the U.S. military presence was extremely unpopular in Iraq. They were there for many years, and uh, they, they did horrible uh, damage to the society, uh, killed many, many innocent people, uh, uncounted innocent people, and generally made uh, the lives of millions of Iraqis very, very difficult. And so uh, public opinion polls have shown over the years that the Iraqi uh, public overwhelmingly rejected the presence of U.S. troops and wanted them out. So these militias are merely uh, acting on behalf of the vast majority of Iraqis in this regard. And what they did was to begin to mount attacks on those bases in Iraq where American troops were stationed. Um, and particularly one uh, base called Camp Taji was where they, they opened up their campaign uh, back in, if I'm not mistaken, um, April or May of last year. And their very first attack, uh, maybe it was actually March, I take that back, it may have been March of last year. Their very first attack killed two American servicemen. So they were clearly very serious about this. They were not going to go easy on the Americans, although they had the previous year. And they were determined to put pressure on them to withdraw from Iraq, which they understood, again, was the in line with the national majority uh, opinion. And uh, this turned out to be a very effective strategy because the United States was forced over the next six months or so to withdraw from a series of bases. Um, and they did so, um, uh, and, and actually uh, uh, the uh, Mackenzie himself admitted that the main reason that they had to do so was because of the attacks on, the, on those bases by the militias. So it was a victory for the anti-US forces in Iraq and a big defeat for the U.S. military there. 
Um, and and it, I'm afraid, uh, or I should say, uh, from McKenzie's point of view, I think he viewed it as a a very big personal loss. So so that was um, that brought us up to November. He had not taken any decisive action before the November election, but after Trump was defeated, and um, uh, the they were there were clearly major changes afoot in the Pentagon. Um, he basically made a major move here uh, to try to put pressure on the Pentagon to uh, to keep the remaining troops there and even restore troops. And that's where this story really begins. Um, and and he was uh, his his main um, uh, modus operandi in trying to put pressure for maintaining these troops in Iraq was to use the allegation that the Iranians were threatening to carry out attacks on US troops in the region, and therefore they needed as many troops as they could get. And it wasn't just troops, but they also needed other military assets. So it was at this point that he also began to take on the question of the carrier task or the carrier strike group uh, Nimitz, which uh, was temporarily in the region, although it was scheduled to return, but but there was a temporary hold on it, and he was trying to make that temporary hold into a more permanent one by using this threat, the alleged threat of Iranian attacks on U.S. troops in the region. So uh, he was he was basically beginning his campaign. Uh, really in in uh, the immediate aftermath of, of the U.S. election. And there was actually a split within the Pentagon, correct, with some officials feeling as though McKenzie and his allies were deliberately exaggerating threats, actually opposed to these maneuvers. Well, unfortunately for McKenzie, um, the person who he had counted on to be able to reverse that decision uh, by Trump Trump's desire to withdraw troops from the Middle East and particularly from Iraq and Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan. Unfortunately for him, Esper, who he was counting on to help him, to support him, was ousted. Uh, I believe it was on uh, November 9th, um, less than a week after the election by Trump and replaced by Christopher Miller, who was very much a Trump loyalist, completely committed to Trump's uh, basically his desire to pull troops out of the Middle East um, and uh, to to basically honor his his pledges to his base. And so uh, Christopher Miller was prepared to do exactly what Trump had wanted. Um, and he was the one who was pushing for the withdrawal both of the remainder of the troops and um, and for the withdrawal of the uh, Nimitz, the uh, carrier strike group. And so that's where the tension existed here within the military between, or the Pentagon and the military, between McKenzie on one side and Christopher Miller, the acting secretary of defense on the other. Now, Trump, of course, was uh, supposedly uh, supporting Christopher Miller. That's what he, uh, what Miller thought Trump wanted. And, uh, Excuse me. Late in December, Miller uh, did make the decision to pull out the Nimitz 
uh, which had again temporarily remained there. Um, but in the meantime, Mackenzie had carried out a whole campaign using the press, particularly, uh, to communicate to the US public the idea that there was new danger, there was new threat to American troops, and it was associated with the date of January 4th. Uh, this is the first anniversary of the U.S. assassination of General Soleimani, Qasem um, Soleimani. And uh, the idea that uh, Mackenzie came up with here, uh, which he tried to sell, tried to use as a, uh, a weapon to try to keep the assets that he wanted to have in the Middle East, these were primarily through reports in the AP, correct, and interviews he gave to ABC and other outlets. ABC, um, I believe, maybe NBC. I'm not sure about that, but definitely um, uh, AP was was another one. And there were three or four more journalists who were part of a a group that he met with, uh, only allowing them to identify him as a senior military official familiar with the region. Middle East region, but clearly it was Mackenzie. There was no possibility that it was anybody else. But he effectively used the media over and over again during this period to sell his line to, to try to bring pressure to bear on the Pentagon to, to uh, do what he was uh, asking. And uh, <clears throat> the other thing was, of course, that, that uh, Trump had ordered that the uh, troops be reduced to 2,500. And uh, he was still, I mean, Mackenzie was still hoping maybe he was some, could somehow reverse that, but he never succeeded in getting that reversed. So it came down to the Nimitz, and he fought like hell to keep the Nimitz there, again, using the media as his uh, proxies, if you will, to get that message out. And I must say, that I cannot recall any other instance of a senior military official using the media uh, so um, uh, cleverly and uh, with, with the intent to, to accomplish a very specific aim, uh, a very, very concrete, well-defined political aim. Uh, David Petraeus came closest to that when he was commander in Afghanistan but uh, I think this outdid Petraeus by far. And so it just underlines the point that I was trying to make in my piece that this guy, McKenzie, is a force politically to be reckoned with, such as we have not seen, mm. uh, as far as I'm concerned, ever before within the U.S. military. And he did succeed not only in these bringing about these provocations, but he acquired more troops for his central command, correct? Well, that's what happened earlier. He did he did succeed in getting troops uh, in 2020 in 2019 2020, uh, which he had demanded, which he had uh, called for. Um, and what happened then was that with during 2020, some of those troops were taken away from him uh, because of the overall Pentagon shift in uh, the major rationale for, for their military budget from the Middle East and counterterrorism to rate power competition and Russia and China, China in particular. So many of these troops were going to 
the uh, Indo-Pacific, some of them were going to Europe. And this was why he was pushing a line uh, early on. Uh, one of the reasons he was pushing that line early on to try to prevent more troops from, from leaving. Uh, it was a combination of the Pentagon's own shift in priorities on one hand, and Trump, of course, being the political obstacle to his aims on the other hand, uh, in some ways even more serious, seriously. But to come back to your earlier point, uh, Anya, uh, you know, there was this uh, split between McKenzie on one hand and Christopher Miller, uh, who I would just point out his, his senior uh, advisor at the Pentagon was Doug McGregor, who, as we both know, uh, is a fierce opponent of the uh, present uh, policy of, of the U.S. military of keeping so many troops and forces in the Middle East and, um, and in continuing the wars that were started before, before Trump. So uh, there's no doubt that Doug McGregor was, was uh, giving him advice on what to do about McKenzie and encouraging him very strongly to resist McKenzie's pressure and to bring back the Nimitz from the Middle East. And that's, uh, that's where you get the denouement here uh, in late December, where uh, Miller actually makes the decision to pull back the Nimitz, to bring it home. And then three days later, he has to reverse it. Uh, must be a very humiliating decision for him to make, but he was left with, with apparently no, uh, no choice but to do so. And um, that, what that means, as far as I can see, is that Trump submitted, uh, caved in to pressure from his Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, and that just underlined the degree to which Trump is so changeable and ultimately without principles and simply cannot be, could not be counted on to make firm decisions. But in the end, of course, McKenzie did win at least a temporary victory on the Nimitz, which mm -hmm. as far as I know is still there. Yeah, he won his battle in the final days of Trump's time in office. But what do we think his role will be in the incoming Biden administration? Well, absolutely, he will be a force to be reckoned with, as I said. Um, and because there will be, uh, I would say, much greater receptivity to his message, to his uh, to his aims, um, uh, I think that there will be a, a, a big problem here. We we're facing a big challenge because I think that there will be people not only within the, within the Pentagon, but within the National Security Council who will be sympathetic to what he's trying to do, if no other reason, but to keep the pressure on Iran, because we know with a high degree of certainty that the Biden administration is going to try to put pressure on the Iranians uh, to get them to agree to demands that are clearly going to be unacceptable to Iran. Uh, having to do with uh, the region, having to do with their ballistic missile program. Uh, they, they have, I think, gotten caught up in this um, whole idea that, well, we can't simply go along with uh, going back to the JCPOA. There has to be more, uh, uh, there, there has to be more um, uh, of a uh, give by the Iranians on our demands which are coming from the U.S. allies in the region, of course, particularly the Israelis and their 
followers, their um, their supporters in the United States, um, and from Republicans uh, in Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think uh, we're, we're going to have uh, a major set of issues here with McKenzie um, having a major role in ramping up the pressure on Iran by convincing the Biden administration that they should have ab uh, you know the the most assets possible in the Middle East, or at least more assets than they otherwise would have devoted to the Middle East in order to have the most credible uh, degree of uh, coercive diplomacy possible. It certainly does seem clear that Biden's team is going to demand more from Iran if they're going to re-enter talks regarding the JCPOA. But I wanted to get your thoughts on the Iranian perspective, because in recent weeks, Iran announced that it has begun enriching uranium to 20 percent. That's higher than the levels permitted in the Iran nuclear deal, which, of course, the U.S. broke primarily. Is this a play to force the Biden administration back to the table or is the deal simply dead from the Iranian side as well? What incentive do they have to engage with Washington? Well, right. I think I think your your second uh, alternative is the correct the correct understanding of what the Iranians are trying to do. Uh, and, and, you know, it is, in fact, to put pressure on the Biden administration with regard to its negotiations with Iran, because otherwise, as I said, the Biden administration will be pushing this uh, set of um, demands on Iran that are going to be totally unacceptable for understandable reasons. And this goes back, uh, we have to begin with the, the history of the U.S. negotiations with Iran, the, the U.S. pressure on Iran, which preceded real negotiations going back all the way to the Bush administration, but particularly under the Obama administration. Uh, when Obama came into office, he, in fact, was the one who upped the ante in terms of um, uh, you know, using all of his uh, sources of diplomatic pressure on Iran to try to force them to come to the table to negotiate uh, an agreement on their, their nuclear program. Maximum pressure. Well, that was that was the term they gave it. They didn't call it. That was the Trump term for for the all out uh, economic pressure. But in fact, it was the Obama administration that began the very serious pressure on the Iranian economy by going after oil exports and going after uh, the central bank. But they didn't go nearly as far as the Trump administration did later on. But but we have to recall that um, when the Obama administration began to put that pressure on Iran, what the Iranians did was to increase the level of uh, uh, enrichment of uranium to 20 percent, which, of course, shook everybody up and it was regarded as a major uh, you know, a violation of the uh, of uh, you know their their uh, not not of the accord because it didn't exist yet, but their claim that they were not interested in nuclear weapons, and uh, but it did put pressure on the Obama administration. Very effective means of putting pressure on them, and it really uh, helped to get Obama to drop the major demand that he was making up to that point 
on Iran, which is that they would have to agree to zero enrichment. That was the position he was taking. And of course, he later on dropped that. Um, but but it put pressure on, on Obama because uh, people were saying, well, what are you going to do about this? Because Iran's going to get a nuclear weapon. You got to do something about it. And so it upped the ante, the, the pressure on, on Obama to get Iran to the table. And he had to make some concessions in order to do it. And, and there's a even further back, there's a history here of Iran basically starting its enrichment program primarily to put diplomatic pressure on the United States to negotiate with it. It's the only way the Iranians could figure out to persuade the U.S. government to negotiate with Iran. They, you know, in the past, the United States wasn't really interested in negotiating because Iran didn't have anything that could force the United States to take them seriously. So, I mean, I've written about this extensively, and, and I, there's no question about this. The Iranians were convinced for a long, long time that the only way they could get the United States to negotiate to end the sanctions that they had already put on them because of Israel was to have a nuclear program that the United States would certainly regard as a, a precursor to nuclear weapons, even though that was not their intention. And so we have Biden taking over. Probably by the time this interview airs, he will be sworn in. And I know you'll be on top of covering developments, not just regarding Iran, but the entire region as they develop in the coming months. So, Gareth Porter, you're one of the few journalists who actually goes out there and produces strong, informative, investigative journalism. So I appreciate your time as always. Well, I appreciate your interest in my pieces. Thanks so much, Anya. 